Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. Happy Pride Month, everybody. I'm so excited. It's our month. Every month should be Pride Month, but this is the month. This is the month to be gay. And on that front, I want to share two pieces of information. One is that my new queer pop party, as I mentioned on the last episode, is having its second installment on Pride Weekend here in LA on June 10th at Resident in downtown LA. I am going to be playing all of your favorite pop music all night. It's going to have an incredible crowd of people. There's some performers that might be showing up TBD that are really exciting. So I need you to be there. If you're in LA, if you're looking for something really fun to do on Pride weekend, gorgeous, gorgeous, June 10th, resident downtown LA. The link for tickets will be in the show notes of this episode. And I will also post it on our social media channels, which are Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Instagram and Twitter. So I hope to see you guys there. Next up, I want to read some of my favorite Apple reviews from the last week. This is our newest tradition. This first one comes from CKJ0145. The podcast pop stands have waited for. This is exactly the type of conversation so many of us wish we could have with our friends every day. If only our friends cared about pop stars and their eras as much as we did. Amen. Can't wait for a pink episode. Love that suggestion. This one is from Dip, 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 Dip. Jumpin' Jumpin' Tier 1 Podcast. Love this show. Love Louie. My favorite music podcast right now. Thank you very much. I've learned so much about some of my faves and have especially enjoyed learning more about artists whose careers I haven't paid that much attention to. I'm going to really need at least two episodes on Beyonce and Destiny's Child soon, though. Please? Okay, thanks. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I, I, yeah. Let me just leave it at that. And then my favorite review maybe that we've ever gotten on the show, I think. This one comes from See You at Cats. Notice of intent to file lawsuit. This review serves as a formal notice of intent to file a lawsuit against you because of slander against my artistry and tier one status. Sincerely, Catherine Hudson, a.k.a. Katy Perry. I can't think of a more perfect review than that. So thank you all for leaving reviews. Please rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple, but on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, help us get the word out there, help spread the word. Really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. Also, please get in the Discord. We are having the best time there every day. Everyone smart, cool, fun is in the Pop Pantheon Discord talking shit about pop music all day, myself included. Link for that will be in the show notes. I will also post it on social. Update on a contest from last month. We are almost there on the Usher episode. So keep it together, everybody. Keep waiting. We're gonna we're we're working on it. It's a top priority. We have an amazing guest lined up. It's coming soon. I can't wait for that episode to come. And I will also be announcing the winner of our second contest, the social media contest, probably in next week's episode. So stay tuned for that. Check out the Spotify playlist for this and every episode in the show notes and also on social media. And that's it. I want to get into this week's episode, which is about one of my all-time favorite bands and a part of queer history, a band that helped awaken me to parts of my queerness, that showed me that queer men should be a part of pop music, not just as fans and not just as inspiration, but front and center, and who also are just a fucking great time to listen to. So this is Pop Pantheon for our Pride Month episode. It is Scissor Sisters. 
As will come as no surprise to the audience of this podcast, queer men are one, if not the backbone of the popular music industry. We stand the hardest, our culture serves as an endless source of inspiration, and we're there for our faves long after the rest of the world has moved on to the next thing. The relationship between gays and pop stars almost goes without saying at this point. It's like peanut butter and jelly, one of life's great pairings and few givens. And yet, Throughout pop history, out and proud gay men have been almost non-existent as pop stars themselves. Sure, there have been big superstars who were queer. Little Richard, Elton John, Freddie Mercury, George Michael, Ricky Martin, but nearly every one of them stayed closeted through the height of their success and fame. Their sexuality not an asset to flaunt, but a dangerous subtext that would surely nuke their careers. Now, finally, in the last few years, we've had some seismic breakthroughs in the pop space like Sam Smith, Troy Sivan, and Little Nas X. Pop stars who were able to be fully and fearlessly out in their music, presentation, and lives. But one pop act that was an utterly crucial turning point, a connection between pop's closeted past and this new generation, too often gets lost in this conversation. The Scissor Sisters, who, at the height of the anti-gay marriage Bush years, found a way to be just about as gay as humanly possible, while also, in a niche way here in the US, but in a fully mainstream one in the UK and Europe, becoming full-fledged pop stars. And they did it by taking their audience on a tour through both pop and gay history, expertly paying homage to styles both widely beloved and resoundly dismissed, showing the world that gayness shouldn't just be a subtext in pop but could be right there, front, center, and in your face. Scissor Sisters came together during the early 2000s at the height of the electro clash scene in New York City. Its two founding members, lead vocalist and songwriter Jake Shears, who worked as a stripper before the band took off, and producer and songwriter Scott Hoffman, known by his stage name Baby Daddy, met in 1999 and instantly bonded over their shared musical tastes. Soon after, they met Anna Lynch, or Animatronic as she's more widely known, the host of a popular cabaret night at famed club The Slipper Room, who became the group's second lead vocalist. The three were later joined by Derek Delmarquis Groin on lead guitar and Patrick Pattyboom Secor on drums. And in 2002, the group signed a deal with a small indie record label and began recording and performing across the New York nightlife scene, where they were known for their campy, sexy performances in which Shears often appeared on stage fully nude and the band threw inflated condoms at the audience. Three of the five band members, including Shears, are openly gay, and their early work felt equally tied to the largely queer, campy performance art scene of downtown New York as it was to the burgeoning electro-clash music movement, an aggressive, alternative, pop-punk dance sound personified by artists like Peaches. The group's first single, Electrobix, began to circulate around New York nightlife in 2002 and 2003. But it was its B-side, a truly bonkers cover of Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb, which showcased Shears' ecstatic, alluring falsetto and turned the dreamy classic rock ballad into a Donna Summer as sung by the Bee Gees disco house anthem that garnered them more widespread attention. 
Comfortably Numb became an organic hit in the UK, landing them a record deal with major label Polydor there. Scissor Sisters released their debut self-titled album in 2004. This record departed almost entirely from the Electroquest sound and presented the group as perhaps the greatest musical review act of all time, gleefully and masterfully mining sounds from pop's past. Luscious disco, soaring 70s rock ballads, 80s synth pop and new wave, all with an impeccable eye for songcraft and also a fun-loving, inviting, raucous, and let's just say it, brashly, audaciously, undeniably gay spirit. The record became an absolute juggernaut in the UK, spawning numerous smashes like Filthy Gorgeous, Laura, and the Elton John-esque country rock stomper Take Your Mama, a record about taking your mother out to a gay club, showing her what a damn good time she could have partying with a bunch of queers, and then, once she's drunk enough on cheap champagne, coming out to her. While Scissor Sisters made the group superstars across the pond, here in America they struggled to connect in the same way, being subjugated, largely as a result of their queerness, to more of a cult phenomenon, an indie act for in-the-know tastemakers and gays, the Robin before Robin, or the Charlie before Charlie. They weren't helped by the fact that some major chains like Walmart refused to carry the record, calling it, quote, a swaggering attack on conservatism. However, their success in the UK and other major markets was nothing short of paradigm shifting. Within a year of the album's release, an openly gay act had dropped the best-selling album of 2004 and was playing the pyramid stage at Glastonbury. Their live shows, too, became legendary, a showcase for their singular combination of consummate musicianship, incredibly high-spirited, transgressive, and vivaciously campy stage presence, the explosive chemistry between Shears and Matronic, and Shears' virtuosic singing and performing chops and unabashedly queer sex appeal. The group followed up the success of the debut in 2006 with Tada, an album which took the pop history genre-hopping pastiche of that record and turned it up to 10,000. There were immaculate Blondie rips on Kiss You Off or Paul McCartney and Wings tributes on Land of a Thousand Words. They did Demiraquai-esque New Disco on Ooh or Barry Gibb on Lights or even Candor and Ebb on I Can't Decide. The music on Tada pulled a neat trick, so undeniably and canonically gay in spirit and presentation, but with lyrics that were broad enough to be somewhat non-threatening to a mainstream audience in 2006. You can happily receive this music as the queerest shit pop had to offer, or simply as an incredibly fun tour through pop rock's past. The lead single, the country disco anthem I Don't Feel Like Dancing, co-written and featuring their idol, Sir Elton John himself, became the group's biggest smash to date, reaching number one in the UK and across the world and standing to this day as their signature hit. While Tada was another huge success for the band in many parts of Europe, the group again struggled to make any dent commercially here in the United States. In addition to our country's homophobia, both latent and conspicuous, this was also a period of American pop that wasn't very hospitable to pure pop music nor to camp. This was pre-Gaga, after all, and most pop stars of the mid-aughts like Gwen Stefani, Jennifer Lopez, and Justin Timberlake had to at least play footsie with hip-hop and R&B, then as now a prevalent force on the radio in order to have success. 
The Scissor Sisters' whimsical approach to pop music really didn't have a place on radio stateside at this time. The creation of their third record also proved to be a bit of an arduous process. The band scrapped an entire record's worth of material before bringing on producer Stuart Price, most famous for collaborating with Madonna on 2005's Confessions on the Dance Floor, to rework the entire thing. The album they came up with, 2010's Nightwork, held true to some of the Scissor Sisters' core values, including their refurbishment of sounds from Pop's past. This time, more obscure references like Judas Priest, Italo Disco, and the Pointer Sisters helped create the sonic palette. But Nightwork also radically shifted their approach, evident right from the album cover, a Robert Maplethorpe photo of a very toned man's butt in spandex leggings. <laughs> Both lyrically and aesthetically, Shears and crew took a darker turn on this record, cutting the good-natured, inviting camp of their first two albums with songs that were daringly, explicitly, and shamelessly about gay sex, romance, and nightlife culture. The fun of it, the danger of it, the ecstasy and the freedom, the sleaze and the loneliness, glory holes and sadomasochism, and wishing your hookup could possibly feel more for you if only you both felt more deserving. Still, today, Nightwork is no doubt one of the gayest mainstream pop albums to ever be released, and also the band's best work. While the lead single Fire With Fire peaked in the top 15 in the UK, the band's more challenging and confrontational approach to presenting its queer identity fractured their audience and sold about one-tenth of what Tada had four years earlier. But it produced some of the band's most beloved and fully realized music, including the almost mythical pay-on to gay nightclubs, Invisible Light. Scissor Sisters released one more album in 2012 called Magic Hour, which felt like a bit of a doubling back following Nightwork's relative commercial underperformance. They worked with numerous producers, including Electro House DJs Boys Noise and Pharrell Williams, and the result was their least cohesive and effective work to date. The record did, however, produce one of the band's most well-known songs and also perhaps its greatest showcase for animatronic, the gay club hit Let's Have a Kiki, which helped popularize the word outside of its origins in black gay culture and turned it into a common parlance. Since then, Jake has written songs for and duetted with stars like Kylie Minogue and Pet Shop Boys and released a solo album in 2018. Animatronic has gone on to be a TV and radio host in the UK, while Baby Daddy has produced songs for artists like Tanache, Demi Lovato, Betty Who, and Cheryl Cole. Scissor Sisters' debut album has been certified nine times platinum in the UK, selling nearly three million albums in that country alone. They've had eight top 20 singles there, three top tens, and one number one. They've been widely noted for their expert musicianship and songcraft by other artists, including U2's Bono, who once referred to them as the best pop group in the world. Here with me to talk about one of my favorite pop acts of all time is the founder of Flux Blog, Matthew Perpetua. Uh -huh. All right, so I am here with music critic and writer of Flux Blog, which is currently celebrating its 20th anniversary. Congratulations. It's Matthew Perpetua. Welcome to Pop Pantheon. Hey, thank you for having me, Lewis. It's my pleasure. I've been a huge fan of yours for a very long time, and I'm so excited to have you here to talk about one of my pet favorite pop acts and also an act that I think the audience of this podcast is going to really love if they've never listened to them or heard of them before. I really am glad that we're having a chance to shine a light on this group who sits at the nexus point of two main things that I really want to talk about with you today on the show, which is the relationship between queerness and mainstream pop, which they play a very interesting 
interesting and pivotal role in, I feel, in modern times. And also the nexus point of differing pop tastes throughout the English-speaking world in particular, mainly between America and many other English-speaking countries and the way that this band has been received differently throughout the world. How many kind of like, you know, big in Japan type acts have you done so far? You know, we've done episodes on Kylie Minogue, for instance, who I think is a relevant topic. Somebody that is a probably like a tier one icon in most of the world, but in America is like super niche and maybe seen as a one hit wonder by anybody who like isn't gay. (laughs) (laughs) And we've done episodes even on like more subtle differentials, like Celine Dion, for instance, who like is a huge superstar here, but is like an even bigger superstar in the French speaking world. So we've touched this before, but I think the Scissor Sisters hit this in sort of a unique fashion. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And also, I was going to say, a group that like has a lot of personal meaning to me because I'm pretty sure Jake Shears was the first proudly out gay pop star that I ever personally experienced in my trajectory as a queer person and my trajectory as a pop music fan. I feel like he really showed me that an out gay man could be like sex forward and like kind of overtly sexual and also make outsiderdom and the underbelly of the gay subculture seem less scary and more fun and something that I was looking forward to, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, it makes a lot of sense. That's a mission of the band. You know, especially when you just hear them talk, even just like stage banter like they really wanted to be these ambassadors and to make people feel more comfortable in who they are and i think that who they are could just mean a lot of things but i think specifically they wanted to be the gay band because there really weren't that many at the time there were very few out gay acts even artists who were gay or bi were keeping pretty quiet about it or in the or the case of like maybe like an rem michael snipe wasn't really making it like the most important thing about what he was doing on stage it was just a thing about him gayness is just like central the scissor sisters and you know if you're going to describe like what the band is like certainly up to that point in time to like the early aughts if you're like what is gay taste the band put all of those things in one place as much as they could to their abilities and tastes or whatever you know they're kind of like a whole gay bar experience experience, a whole bunch of different gay bar experiences compacted onto one album. It's kind of like an instant gay bar. And obviously, like, Take Your Mama is, like, about going to a gay bar and taking an outsider and bringing them in and making them feel welcomed. That feels like their mission statement as a band, and I think it'll be fun to track with you the ways that they represented their queerness in their music over the discography, because... It really did shift in my mind because, as you said, presentationally, they always felt overtly very queer, front and center. Even the dynamic between the gay guy and his girl best friend being the front of the band feels very canonically queer to me. Yes. And you have a bear on guitar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like all the different gay subtypes are like represented. You have a twink drummer. I guess, I guess, <laughs> I guess uh, Jake is also a twink, but he's kind of like a buffer. Well, he, w- he matured out of twinkdom at some point during the band's run, but definitely at one point he was a twink. But it was interesting looking back through their music because in different forms, it was less forward, sometimes lyrically speaking, like especially on their earlier two records. And they really, over the course of the discography, placed it more front and center in the lyrical content and in this vibe of the music. And I'll be interested with you to kind of pick this apart about like maybe some speculation about what their intentions were because you listen to some of their early records, the gayness feels 
in the music, but it doesn't necessarily feel overtly in the subject matter in a way that I wonder how intentional that was. Right. I feel like what you're saying is like they leave some things more to subtext right, earlier exactly. on. And exactly. I think that's, I don't think they ever fully abandon subtext, but with night work, especially yes. like a lot of things are really much more overt, but there's still like some Easter eggs. I mean, a lot of my experience of Scissor Sisters is kind of shared with my friend Chris Conroy, who I wish I could be here because I'm straight, but Chris is gay and like yeah. we, we experienced so much of the Scissor Sisters together going right. to the same shows. But I think Chris was always very helpful to me in the sense that he could decode some things that would mm. go over my head as a straight right. guy. Mm-hmm. God, I wish I could remember exactly which song it is, but there's a line about, you know, basically have you given someone where you're going tonight? Just yeah. out of safety. Right, I know what you're talking about. It's on night work, insinuating like you're going for a hookup. Have you let your friend know where you're going to be? Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like that's a line that I don't think I would fully have comprehended sure. where that song was going without having that being made clear from someone who would know. Well, they never abandoned the subtext in that regard, but I feel like some of the early music you Well, I mean, almost... it's subtext to me, but it would be text right. to you. True. But in the early music, there might have been an intuition or a need to have the songs feel broadly universal in order to achieve the success they actually did have in Europe and some other countries. Yeah. Not here, obviously. Here they've always operated as like an indie act or more of like a niche act, as we're going to discuss ad nauseum, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, where songs on Nightwork feel like very overtly, intentionally throwing gay sex in your face in a way that's extremely, I think, appealing and it makes well, it Well, I mean, then there's the cover. Record. And they cover, of course, <laughs> of, the, of the Robert Maplethorpe photo with the guy's butt. But I think there's a certain move which a lot of gay artists have had to do in the past who desire mainstream success I have Sam Smith on my mind right now be like yeah I'm gay but I keep my music somewhat universal feeling so that straight people aren't intimidated or afraid to like it and I think that it's interesting with a band like the Scissor Sisters as opposed to someone like Sam Smith who like also is kind of conservative appearing that they were very campy in appearance and performance and presentation always but sometimes the early music they did a neat trick of keeping as you said the gayness sort of subtextual in the musical influence choices in some cases more so than throwing it in your face in ways that they did in latter albums yeah i think especially if you're not seeing them live you're seeing them live there's yeah no right which is a huge part of <laughs> but, the scissor sisters experience i feel like i fell yeah. in love with them seeing them live oh good i was gonna ask you if you had i was really hoping that you had gotten the chance yeah i was in yeah. college i don't remember like sometime in college i went to some stupid music festival in maryland that definitely doesn't exist anymore like the verizon music fest or something <laughs> stupid like that and i just remember seeing them and i had been like a loose fan it was in the tada era and i just was absolutely blown away they are just mm. the most dynamic energetic fun, fun-loving, campy performers, and also musical virtuosos, which I think is kind of the other piece yeah. here, which is they're real musicians. Jake Shears is an incredible songwriter, has a real gift with melody. It's always felt like the musicality of it has also been an incredibly important ingredient yeah. to the Baby Daddy is a very sophisticated songwriter. Mm-hmm. Almost like in an ABBA-esque kind of way, which I know they nod to a lot, real pop savants who take something frivolous and silly very seriously and bring a real musicality to it. Yeah, you know, you can definitely find artists who will do pastiche. Right. I feel like when they were thinking about pastiche, the kind of songs they wanted to write, they saw the bar as the things they wanted to write, not just mm. getting within spitting distance. So if you're going to write an Elton John song, it should be as good as Elton John's song. Mm. A Dolly Parton song is good as Dolly Parton's song. A Depeche Mode song is good as a Depeche Mode song and so on. Yeah, that's another thing I want to make sure that we track here a little bit is they do 
come across as pastiche at certain moments. And I think they walk a line, sometimes very adroitly and sometimes less so, between seeming like almost a cover band. In their best moments, they do what you're saying, which is expertly mimic, but also like add something else to it that makes it singular to the Scissor Sisters. Yeah. And then sometimes they can fall on the other side of the line where you feel like you're listening to Airsats Blondie or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. At their best, they're making their own jukebox hits. Exactly. Their early albums come across like that. So we'll definitely touch on all that. So let's take a minute here. And I just want to like do some table setting, kind of stage setting here a little bit and talk about broad strokes, the history of queer people in mainstream pop. Because frankly, in terms of out gay guys, it's kind of a brief history. So let's just talk very quickly about the history of gay men in the mainstream pop space. So I think, you know, if you go far back in time, you have things like Cole Porter, that is a manifestation of specifically gay artists. You know, they're still talking to the mainstream and hiding, but it's still palpably in there that mm -hmm. you can identify that this is a queer thing. Yeah. But he didn't love me. I wanted him, but he didn't want me. More overtly, you enter the 70s and you have disco and the things that were coming directly out of gay clubs then, Sylvester. I think if you look at the 70s, there's definitely a lot of things that are, if not completely out, it's like basically out and everyone sort of right. understood. Right. Jake and Baby Daddy and them. But it feels like the culture that they're trying to emulate comes from that 70s gay culture that's between Stonewall and pre-AIDS. Mm. This really beautiful glory era mm. that got snuffed out and I think the Scissor Sisters in some way were trying to, on the other side of the AIDS epidemic, bring some of that back. It seems to me that's what they wanted. Mm. And then also just kind of honoring the gay culture that popped up along the way as well. Your Pet Shop Boys, Erasure, things like that. Right. In a I mean, on Nightwork, I guess you get some of the more dangerous elements of it, but a lot of what defines the Scissor Sisters' lyrical moves or like the vibe of their music is that being in a gay subculture even though it's not part of the mainstream and even though you're kind of an outsider and you're maybe rejected, that's kind of what makes it fun. Oh, actually being rejected by the mainstream and having to form your own identity and culture is a fun, good thing. And I think yeah. maybe that's speaking to that era a little bit. Because the AIDS epidemic really changed that energy within the gay culture and from the outside gays. 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 G-A-Z-E. <laughs> Coming to this as a young man, did you kind of identify this as something that you wanted to exist and then it existed? No, I think it was more that I was such a huge pop fan. And I think this is a fascinating facet of this whole conversation, which is like queer men, gay men are probably the 
core audience of popular music if you were mm-hmm. going to nail them for the most part, right? Yeah, gay men, teen girls. Exactly. You know. We'll stand these pop artists way past their primes. We'll keep the flops alive. Like we're the ones that are kind of the core foundation of the pop audience, as you said, us and teen girls. And yet you don't see yourself in the foreground. You see yourself subtextually. You see yourself in the Vogue video because Madonna is pillorying a gay subculture there and she's bringing it into her world, but she's still a straight woman. Or you have George Michael and you have Freddie Mercury. I was Mercury. just going to ask you what, yeah. your, what your association with George Michael was. You know, he wasn't out-out in that way during his prime years where it felt like a proud thing. Like, you were still seeing them as like, oh, this isn't something that you can really say out loud. This isn't something you can put out there. Ricky Martin, who I grew up with, rumored to be gay, but that was always seen as like a detriment or something to be looked down upon. And Elton John, George Michael, Freddie Mercury, the three pillars of gay men in pop who are real pop stars, none of them were really out when they were having the prime years of their success. Something had to go wrong for this. Exactly. <laughs> I saw so few representations, you know, I'm 35, so this was in the 90s and the 2000s, of how being out and gay was fun and cool and sexy. I just never saw that. Because even if George Michael had sex appeal and Freddie Mercury certainly had sex appeal, there was still this feeling of, but they're not allowed to talk about being gay. So it's still a bad thing that's not on the surface. So when I saw Jake Shears, that was really honestly one of the first times that I saw that. I was like, oh my God, like this guy like loves being gay. He makes it seem fun and sexy. Yeah. At the time, looking at the critical culture, I felt like people did not get that. Because I don't think people really thought so much about representation to begin with. I think they may have seen it more as tokenism. Yeah. Going back through the contemporaneous reviews of their early work, it's actually weirdly kind of matter of fact in a way that it wouldn't even be in this day and age where there are actually some gay pop stars and it's way more in the foreground now. It was fascinating to me going back and reading these reviews in 2004 of their debut album and it was almost like not taken as as big of a deal as it actually was, weirdly enough. Yeah. The Sisters in the United States, they were kind of seen as just a New York City band. Right. In the, kind of the same way that the Strokes or Interpol, you know, they, they exist in that context. They are part of that story. They are part of the mm. Electroclash story. They're part of the New York City rock story. Can you talk a little bit about the scenes that you see them as emerging from? So we've talked a little bit about the queerness factor, but like, what are the scenes within New York that give birth to the Scissor Sisters? Because I also remember them as more part of that scene and like kind of indie clubs music scene of New York of that time. Yeah, so I think the the earliest days of that band, they were more aligned with Electro Clash. What is Electro Clash? Can you explain that? Oh, so that would be like Peaches. Sucking on my titties like you wanna be calling me all the time like Blondie. Check out my Chrissy behind it's fine all of the time. This kitten, like a lot of raunchy, electronic, a little bit dance, a little bit punk, very raw, very horny, very aggressive. So that's all happening in the very late 90s into around 2002 or so, 2003. It's really this underground thing. It's an extremely hipster thing. A lot of gay hipsters, a lot of coked up, like, Euro trash type <laughs> hipsters. 
I went to art school. I was at Parsons School of Design when this is all happening. Yeah. The coolest people you do were going to this or like trash bar. Uh-huh. Can you talk a little bit about how the Scissor Sisters came to be? Jake Shears and Baby Daddy are acquaintances of some kind and they mm-hmm. just start making songs together and they start pulling in other people. So I think Animatronic was just at one of their shows and then just insinuated herself in the band because yeah. she liked them. The way I understand it is that Jake, who is the lead singer, Jake Shears, lead singer, main songwriter of the band, and Baby Baby Daddy, who is his main collaborator and the producer of the majority of the Sitter Sisters' work, met in the late 90s, early 2000s in the sort of electro-clash downtown New York club scene that we were just describing. They went to Disneyland and they met animatronic at a screening of Captain EO, the Michael Jackson thing at Disneyland. (laughs) That's even weirder. The cosmos, a universe of good and evil, where a small group struggles to bring freedom to the countless worlds of despair. A ragtag band led by the infamous Captain Eel. Yeah, weird, but I think appropriately camp for this group. And so Animatronic, who becomes the third key member, sort of the secondary lead singer and also the group's mascot in a sense, is also on this ride and Another Part of Me by Michael Jackson starts playing. You're just another part of me. And Jake breaks out his now legendary falsetto and Anna apparently moonwalked and thus they were bonded for life. That's the story that I heard, which is oddly appropriate because Michael Jackson is obviously a gigantic influence on the Scissor Sisters. I feel like I've heard it both ways, but that's a better story. We'll make that canon. And then apparently she hosted a cabaret show at the Slipper Room called Knock Off and basically invited Jake and Baby Daddy to perform and I guess that was when she also just kind of jumped on stage with them and like became okay. So it's act. like it's kind of a mix of yes, all these things. Exactly. But yeah, but the, the point is like they're kind of people who are existing in this scene and they come together and right. start making the music. And no, I saw them at least two or three times before the album was out. Right. And I think I had a version of the record for a while as well. So are I you was... talking about the demo or are you talking about the actual album? <laughs> it's both. But yeah. Right. So this demo slash album is floating around in the underground NYC scene, and the lead single from it's called Electropix. So they released this single, Electrobix, which kind of goes nowhere, essentially, like independent. I think it is okay in the UK, maybe, but it's definitely like a cool club kind of thing. And they're signed to an indie label at this point called A Touch of Class, which I had never really heard of before. But <laughs> Right, and then there's this B-side for Electrobix, which is a cover of Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd that sounds like it was done by the Bee Gees, essentially. Hello. His vocals very Bee Gees. I think the music might actually be a little bit more Donna Summer. Yeah, it's kind of totally. like it's remaking this classic Pink Floyd song, which is like this dreamy ballad. And turning it into, I think, still pretty dreamy, but like you know, it's a disco song. Right.
So the Scissor Sisters are kind of kicking around the New York scene. They have this demo slash album that they've made independently that you were just talking about. Electro Bix is the single that they're trying to work. And then they have this B-side, Comfortably Numb, which is what we've been talking about, that sort of becomes an organic club hit, an actual sort of hit overseas. It's a club hit in a sort of New York cool, New York-y scene, but it becomes an actual hit in the UK. Why were people so taken with that, do you think? It's a cool magic trick. A lot of it's novelty. And right. So it's just like hearing that, but also it's so well executed that it just takes a song in a different place. And you don't really even need to know the original to really get a lot out of it. There was something, I think, almost in a fun way, sacrilegious about going into these like classic rock texts and turning it into something so campy. I feel like that's a real Scissor Sisters hallmark is sort of like both their like respect for music of the past, but also their playfulness with all of it. And I feel like this song is a fun introduction to them because it introduces those two elements in a really interesting way, which is that they're kind of musical historians and they take that sort of really seriously as you were getting at with their musicality and their musicianship and all of that kind of stuff. But they also are down to turn up the camp factor and they don't have yeah. any shame about that. And that song really encompasses both of those things. The way I think of that particular covers like sometimes you know you'll hear a song and you can just kind of hear a different version of it in your head mm -hmm. they kind of saw the sculpture and the stone there you know yeah <laughs> uh, that's so true i feel like there's a certain reference points that jake returns to quite a bit obviously barry gibb is one of the biggest ones and you can really yeah. hear that falsetto i mean he almost sounds uncomfortably numb like he's imitating barry gibb i mean it sounds just yeah, like I, I would him. say so So Comfortably Numb becomes this organic hit in the UK and leads to their record deal there. And they then go about recording their debut self-titled album. Now, this album veers off of the Electro Clash sound of the demo and of Electro Bix. Do you know anything about the creation of that album or sort of like what their intentions were with making that record? What was the plan there? Like, were they thinking of themselves at this point now that they had a major record deal in the UK, for instance, like as a band that was like a pop band that wanted to have massive mainstream success? Or do you think they saw themselves as kind of like a niche thing and that they might always be that? When they were making that record, I think they were just realizing that thing that they had in their head of what they wanted their band to be right so doing all these different kinds of songs and kind of growing as a band and growing as songwriters so all of the creative decisions seem very organic i can't imagine that they foresaw right how well they would do commercially particularly yeah. in the uk right that seems just like tremendous luck and everything just kind of lining up correctly the moment and being there and just being the right performers in the right moment. Looking back at it though, does the success of a song like Comfortably Numb make more sense in a UK context than in an American pop context in that particular period in the early aughts? Like I would say literally everything the band ever did makes more sense in a UK or European context. Talk to me about why. Because there's a campness that's inherent to everything they do. Mm -hmm 
that is just something America consistently has trouble with, the overt gayness of them. I think mm. other points they're going a little deeper or darker, but like there's never a point where it's not a band that was out gay. The songs are in some way about being gay. And then we're talking about the, this is the Bush era and the aughts in general, I think it's not like there's ever some non-homophobic era, but I think there's right. still a lot of just unfiltered homophobia in the culture. I mean, if you watch like most comedies that came out in that decade, even into the early teens, there's just so many casual gay jokes. It's funny because I think that if the Scissor Sisters existed now, it would be a very different thing. Existing in the Bush era, they really are more this, I don't think confrontational is the right word, but I think the word is just unapologetic. They yeah. make no compromise. Right. Britain is not culturally a better place. And certainly it's an island full of turfs now. Right. So. <laughs> right. But there is a long history of camp being right. mainstream right. in the UK and a lot of Europe. A lot of the cultural things that they're drawing on make more immediate sense in a culture where that's just part of a day-to-day. -day. Whereas I think in the United States, even beyond what the culture of the aughts were like, not everything's going to make total sense. So I think they were definitely going to be successful in a niche way in the United States. But the success that they had abroad has to do with people being able to understand where they're coming from a little better and also just kind of feel invited to that party. Yeah. But also just like the timing was right. You know, so many of these things, the timing has to be right. I think the camp element is so important. I mean, generally speaking, UK and Europe has a much more fluid relationship to pure pop which is inherently campy yeah. throughout time we just did an episode on ABBA I mean we talked about this ad nauseum we have a struggle relationship with pure pop music in America there's moments where we allow ourselves to embrace it and then there's moments where we feel like it's beneath our cultural standing or that it's somehow so lowbrow that it affects our cultural standing to appreciate it yeah it kind of comes and goes yeah and the other thing that I thought was kind of relevant to this conversation is that in the early 2000s the dominant subgenre of mainstream popular music was hip hop and hip-hop inflected pop music i mean this is the era of 50 cent <laughs> eminem fabulous whatever even jennifer lopez and the bigger actual pure pop stars were hip-hop adjacent <laughs> The Scissor Sisters music is, thank God, almost hip-hop free. It's like a world where it never happened. <laughs> exactly. So I think that that is part of the mix too, which is that like American popular music, I think this has changed now that hip-hop is just such a global force. But I think still in this early period, hip-hop was a much more powerful force, potentially in American mainstream music than it was in European marketplaces. And that could have been part of it as well. So that's the kind of ground that they're walking into. There's this New York niche club act known to people in the know. And then they have this kind kind of like weird fluke hit with this cover of Comfortably Numb. They go about making their debut album, which is the self-titled record, which I guess is always going to be, as we were talking about, geared more towards the UK and a European market than it is towards American popular music. I think from the onset, I would have to imagine. So how would you describe the music on Scissor Sisters, their debut album? It's kind of like, well, what is gay taste in pop music? Well, let's do one of each. <laughs> Take Your Mama is a camp country song. It's kind of like a Dolly song. Country I hadn't thought of. I almost thought of like a barroom sing-along of some sort. Yeah, yeah. But it's like a country rock, like honky-tonk yes. kind of song. Honky-tonk, that's what I'm looking for.
And also, honestly, speaking of gay history, a little bit Freedom 90. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Mary. Mary is definitely kind of an Elton John in ballad mode. Tits on the Radio, I think, is very much a song of the Electric Clash moment of like the New York City rock. I mean, mm. when I want to include them, that's the song that fits in comfortably with everything oh, else. Oh, interesting. Filthy Gorgeous is this kind of a camp gay disco song. Uh, music is the victim, I think, is more of like a, a rock Elton John song. Yes, exactly. Better Luck, that's kind of an erasure song. It can't come quickly enough. It's more of a Depeche Mode song. The music comes across as like a tour through pop music history, as like a tour through gay history. Every single song, you can really easily pick out the influence. That's part of the fun of listening to Scissor Sisters on some level, I feel like, is like spot the influence spot what they're drawing on here like the way you even described every song just now was like by saying this is a this band song and this is an elton song and this is the <laughs> mode and this is yeah we, and we could just kind of go through the whole discography like that because i mean they are doing these pastiches they're not a band that's trying to reinvent the wheel but i feel like they always put their own identity on these songs how do they do that i think it's largely in musical aesthetic things, the way they play a guitar part, like the tones they choose. But I think really mostly in Jake's presence and his voice and, mm. and, and the dynamic with animatronic, you just get their character. The songs will feel like they're from this other space, but they're grounded in them being there with you in the moment. Mm. And then I think also, you know, seeing them live, so much of it is in the energy of Jake and Anna. Jake is just like this incredible performer and just incredibly physical, yes. just a real showman. God, I'm just remembering seeing them play at the Hammerstein Ballroom kind of around Christmas time. I think it's probably is 2005. Yeah. I just remember that show concluding with Music is the Victim and him having all these little gay elves running around and he's basically naked but wearing like a Santa hat. It's like that kind of like yeah. over the top silliness, but it's also very sexual. Right. But these songs aren't particularly sex forward, unlike a lot of right. their later work. I mean, that was one question that I wanted to ask you is what 
what are these songs about? I mean, I think Take Your Mama is an interesting song on this record because if you weren't paying close attention, you might not get this, but this is a song about taking your mom out drinking so you can come out to her, essentially. is like, <laughs> and, and I thought it was interesting the way that that song is about kind of showing her what we were talking about earlier in terms of what the Scissor Sisters ethos is, which is that you might fear gay culture, gay nightlife, gay scene, whatever, but we're going to take you, we're going to show you that it's actually a fucking rocking good time, and then we're going to use yeah. that context to come out to you. That's a very scissor sisterian conceit. I think the flip side of Take Your Mama is yeah. a Filthy Gorgeous because that's right. the one where it's like super out, super proud, right. super just like sleazy and fun. Yes, right. So it's kind of like Take Your Mama is building you up so you're ready for Filthy Gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Filthy Gorgeous is, yeah, exactly, as you said, like it has like more of a sleaze to it. As does a song like Lovers in the Back Seat, which we haven't talked about yeah. yet, which is kind of about voyeurism and watching somebody else have sex. There's lovers in the back seat, jealous glances, now I'm looking for another song. On the radio, I'll take it to a side street. In the shadows, you can touch one another now, and I'll just watch a show. That's one of the rare songs on this record that really explicitly dives into the sleazier subculture of sex that goes on, like mainly in gay culture, but I guess across all of it, because a lot of these songs, you know, returning to the Matthew is like, you can really just receive this as 70s rock pastiche and like really just appreciate it on that level. You're not having the more subversive elements of gay culture and sex thrown in your face on this record. Yeah, I think that's part of why it connected on such a large scale in England and Europe, right. because you could just take it as this is just a good old-fashioned rock record exactly with some dance songs in it mary is just like this ballad of friendship but it's mm -hmm. like i think when you look at it in the context of gay culture it's about the archetype of your female best friend yes and like how much she means to you but this is not a romantic thing exactly i've had it easy now you see when i'm down you're always there standing by to comfort me That is a song that's particular to gayness, but it doesn't have to be. Right, which is how most of these songs operate on this first record, I felt. And that, as I think you said, is a huge reason why it's able to connect on such a huge level in a time where gayness is not as broadly accepted as we now think of it. My read on this record is that I don't think they're dialing anything back. I think that this is just where Jake was. Yeah. I don't think he was necessarily thinking about 
identity as much. I think he was thinking about kind of experience. Mm. And I think a lot of these songs speak to experiences and to archetypes within gay culture. Yeah. You know, Laura, <laughs> kind of Caddy's song about a hairdresser. Yeah. I picked up some of this honestly now going back to some of this music and trying to think about it from more of a critical perspective. But as you said, like these are mostly just extremely well-made, fun pop rock songs. You do not have to receive these as gay anthems in any sort of way unless you like kind of want to or like that's the lens through which you're seeing it, which is a pretty neat trick to pull off for a band that's as fucking gay as the Scissor Sisters are. <laughs> so... The record comes out. My impression is they have a variety of, you know, not number one smashes in the UK, but like Comfortably Numb is a hit. Take Your Mama is a hit. I think Laura is a hit. Filthy Gorgeous is a top 10 hit. So in the UK, are they big pop stars, like seen as big mainstream pop stars? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're huge at that point in time. The first two records, they're just like straight on, straight on, they're they're straight (laughs) on mainstream (laughs) stars. Thinking about things... We're in May of 2022. It might be like roughly equivalent to like how everyone's suddenly excited about Olivia Rodrigo, mm-hmm. you know, and this like this like big new star, a bunch of new songs everybody likes, just like a first record that everyone's just like super into right away off the bat. But I think it's like roughly equivalent to something like that. Maybe not as big as I no. think maybe Olivia Rodrigo's might be a little bit bigger. I'm trying to think. Of, you know what I'm saying? It's comp. like it's like that kind of like hot first record out of nowhere, instant stars. Yeah, and what's the deal over here? And over here, I think it would be, <laughs> it would be more like snail mail, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where it's like it's doing well. Like they play pretty big venues, right. but bigger than you might expect, but not mainstream. I think it also depended largely on where. So in New York City, they were right. a big band. Right. Like they were a popular band. Any show you went to was sold out. Right. They played like fairly large venues. Right. I think it really depended on like how much of a gay scene is any given city. I just remember this was a time where indie music was really huge in its own way. And that was where they sort of sat in my mind. It wasn't like the Strokes were having number one Hot 100 hits, you know what I mean? But they still felt like the biggest deal in the world. And that was sort of like an adjacent Well, thing. yeah. You know, it's funny because I feel like at that point in time, they probably were roughly a similar level of success right like similar levels of cds being sold the venues that they would play are probably roughly similar the difference there is just that the strokes were something mainstream magazines were really excited about because of course basically you're talking about the straightest band and the gayest yeah exactly in the same scene (laughs) thinking about how magazines and this media were like, especially in that period of time, yeah. it's just so straight, it's so white. All right. It's all dudes. So there weren't a lot of people to be excited about the Sisters. So, you know, there definitely were people there. They definitely had some support, but it was never going to be the same kind of support the Strokes got. Yeah. Do you have a sense of how the queerness was received in these various, like, was it something people were talking about? I mean, we talked a little bit about how, like, I was reading these reviews of the record from the time period, and it just felt like people weren't making that big of a deal about it. Was that your impression of how it was received? That was the play in most general music 
music publications yeah, yeah, where yeah, you right. would just kind of like write about it's like oh yeah they're a gay band and they, they're kind of gay right but it wouldn't <laughs> but it, it would just be unbecoming to focus in on that or make a big deal i think that would make you look homophobic right whereas now there'd be like 10 trillion think pieces about every exactly, single move exactly that he all, made all these things would meant. be received yeah. very different yeah it was really just matter of fact weirdly i'm actually pretty curious how gay publications wrote about them do you have any recollection of that i read a few it, it felt just as passive as everything else like considering that this looking back now feels monumental and i really don't mean to understate that he is low-key kind of like the first super out gay mainstream male pop star before little nas x before sam smith he was really doing it and it didn't feel like it had a ton of fanfare around it in that respect i'm right with you and i think at the time i was right there what you're saying but i don't think it really hit people as an important thing the people who would be writing about this stuff it was more the era of we're evolving as a culture and like things this is all happening and it's a matter of fact and it's inevitable not to quote a later song of theirs that we're going to have progress that was kind of the vibe that i got from reading yeah that's that's the liberal attitude yeah it was exactly it was like pre-trump era not to be like you know reductive about it but it was like there was this feeling that the march of progress was inevitable and within certain circles i don't you know within like white privilege privileged liberal mindset which is like where the sister sisters were probably mostly operating and like that was the vibe that i got reading reviews both in mainstream publications like pitchfork and the new york times and whatever and also reading uh, like reviews of them and like the advocate yeah i think a lot of it really is the feeling that not even noticing that it was a big deal yeah because i think that you know you're pointing out something correct that okay we have some of these people who are gay stars we didn't know that necessarily at the time that would be something you would lean right you would guess whisper about right i mean it's not like it's completely alone erasure was always fully out right there's a few there's a few examples it happened and maybe the fact that some of these things did happen was part of was like oh ho hum but it's still a big deal and contextually in the indie scene of that period of time where it really was so incredibly straight Yeah. It was a big deal. I mean, thinking about the strokes is like, you're so right. Like, I never thought about it this way, but they were so straight. Like, it was so canonically straight. Yeah. Most of the reviews were focused on more the pastiche element and like, oh my God, here's a band that is reviving all of these styles very overtly and very effectively and with skill. That was kind of what the reviews were saying. That's the comfort zone of a music critic. Yeah. (laughs) So, they have this very successful first record. As you said, they're big new pop stars in the UK. They're kind of critical darlings here in America who are known in the know. Music critics, Gacy, New York, LA, San Francisco, I would say like more of a cult band. Cult band. I feel like the real energy behind them is the fans. Like, the fans, right. Like their gay audience is what's powering them. Because the critics are kind of like, eh, they're fine. But the real support for them is the grassroots gay culture. Maybe the comp is Charlie XCX. I mean, like somebody that is like a huge cult phenomenon who never gets a radio hit. Nobody in mainstream America gives a fuck. But like she is just the providence of gay men and of like, you know, whatever, those <laughs> in the know or whatever. Yeah, I think that's a good contemporary. There's a lot of people like that. I feel like now there's a lot of people like right, that. Right, exactly. They're kind of trendsetters it, in that way. Contextually, a lot of the people that would be like this were even more obscure because it's pre-social media, it's yeah. pre-streaming. So if you wanted to be really into Kylie, you're buying import CDs. If you're into Girls Alive, 
loud, things right. like that. You have to like really put in the time and effort. Yeah, you know, I I mean, I always, I've said this a million times on this podcast, everyone's going to be sick of me saying it, but I really feel like Robin's second wave success is kind of the inflection point that created much more of a lane for these cult pop phenomenons, like where you could be a pure pop artist who's like essentially making radio-friendly music, but for whatever reason, it's just not connecting, but you can still maintain a long, successful career without ever having chart success while making pure pop music. I feel like Robin is kind of like patient zero for that, but Scissor Sisters are almost patient sub-zero in a sense. Oh yeah. In the first eight years or so of my site, a lot of my energy was going into trying to document this pop underground. Right. Scissor Sisters were a big part of that. I was right about them very very early on yeah annie robin the knife there's all these things that are happening around the world Mm -hmm. and a lot of things that are so obscure that they barely exist now right this was something that was happening and i think you're right robin is the inflection point because that's where some things really start getting traction and it really makes a logical sense that okay we have like alternative pop stars now right exactly a hundred percent and i think prior to robin that was a a completely notional thing or you would interpret them as flops a hundred percent and that's, that's like the most brutal way of doing it this, well and they would but, be yeah. flops because without the internet you don't have access to your niche fandom if you wanted to make pop music for most of pop history you were like either going to be janet jackson or like nothing was going on for you because there wasn't this indie culture around pop music that's what i feel like robin was such an inflection point for she was both credible and seen as cool and seen as critically acceptable and also made pure pop music it's like the collision of pop optimism and the internet or something like that that allowed that exactly and i think a little bit before that this is where it really ties with scissor sisters in a very direct way kylie minogue right. is really one of the international stars who really gets a real serious cult audience mm. in the U.S., right, where the interpretation of her middling or sporadic success in the United States is not that she's a flop. It's just the the rest of the world gets it. Right here doesn't. Right, the Scissor Sisters do a song with her like very early on, and it's called uh, "I Believe in You." It's an amazing song. So basically, they come off of this really successful record in 04, and they go into making their second record, which is called Tada. Now, talk to me a little bit about Tada and like how does Tada either build on what they were doing on the first record or does it try anything new? And, you know, how do you feel about this album? I love Tada. Yeah. A lot of my favorites are on Tada. Do you see it as round two of the same approach, essentially? I think so. I see it more as consolidating what they were doing, proving that we're not a fluke. I think there probably was some sense that they wanted to keep things familiar to the previous record. They probably wanted to keep the party going. Yes. (laughs) So a lot of the songs are in the same vein, but I think maybe with a little bit more sophistication in some ways and the songwriting. But also I think there's more musical theater on this record than on the first one. You literally get some true candor and ebb nods here. Like, I can't decide (laughs) and intermission. I was just going to say, I can't decide is such a musical theater song. I was literally like, this could be in 
Cabaret, sung by MC. Like, I was getting that. Talk about gay pop stars of yore. Let's say MC from Cabaret can be thrown into the mix. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I agree with you. I feel like it's essentially like an expanded widescreen version, potentially, of the first record. It's like a little bit slicker. Oh, yeah, it's a sequel. Yeah. Yeah, we have more money. We can go big. I actually read that they recorded the whole first album in Baby Daddy's apartment, and this I do not think they did that. And, and you can really tell. Yeah, this is definitely expensive studios. Yeah. It sounds great. You it know? does. And it also has that same grab bag history, like almost like a run through history feel. There's almost like a vibe that you're getting a pop history lesson sometimes when you're listening to this music. As we said, you can play spot the reference. Like, She's My Man is giving Elton I'm Still Standing 80s yeah. Elton vibe. Don't you know I'm still standing better than I ever did Looking like a true survivor Feeling like a little kid She's my man and we got all the fun we need When you disappear in your image Smells your sympathy so There's a little bit of Billy Joel in that one, too. Totally. Bad Billy Joel. <laughs> it's like, it almost feels like they're a musical review act. And like here, they're extending it back almost like a hundred years or something like that. I think the difference between the first and second record is the first one is kind of saying before, it's kind of like, here is it, your instant gay bar. Yeah. And this one is a cabaret. Mm. This record is absolutely a cabaret. Totally. That's such a good point. Right. Because then you get like, again, you get lights, which is probably their most direct Bee Gees knock. When you could- I got night fever and also grease is the word a little bit. Like, (laughs) and also a little bit missing you by the Rolling Stones. Oh, yeah. In their kind of disco jab. In the ballad front, there's some really good ones, like Land of a Thousand Words is like the Bond theme that never was. I was getting like Wings Live and Let Die vibes oh, from that song. I've never thought of it that way, but you're so right. That right? is such a like their Bond song. And this speaks to something that I think we touched on earlier, but it's so important to say. They are incredible musicians. These songs are so well-written and well-made. That's why they're able to transcend being like a cover act pastiche, almost more so than like, you know, the other act that always comes to mind to me is, is this actually music I can take seriously because it's so pastiche is Bruno Mars. And I always feel like I'm walking that line on every Bruno Mars song where I'm like, are you someone I can really absorb and take seriously? Or are you just like the world's greatest cover band of all time. Well, yeah, Bruno Mars is interesting because I feel like he is gradually making the greatest wedding DJ set of only his songs. But the songs are so filial to their influences that it sometimes just feels like this is a Vegas review. This is not like original music on some level. He could often end up on the wrong side of this, whereas like the Scissor Sisters 
and especially on this record, which is like so filled with these references, you still come out of these feeling like these are their songs and there's something essentially Scissor Sisters-y about them. Do you know what the difference is? Yeah. It's that these songs, especially on Tada, more so than the other records, I think Tada, the reference points are a little more deep. They're mm. deeper cuts. Mm -hmm. They're not the most obvious songs in the world. They're not the most obvious artists right. in That's the world. So, so even if you're talking like She's My Man, which right. I think is probably one of the more obvious ones. Right. Like when you think of Elton John is I'm Still Standing one no. of the first 15 songs you think no, of. No. I mean, it's a huge hit. We all know it. Yeah. But, but also they've already paid homage to more of his like recognizable styles at this point. Yeah. I feel like you could probably go through the catalog and just make like, here's a little mini EP yeah. of their Elton's. And they became close friends of Elton John, which makes total sense. Can I talk about my favorite? Yeah, let's hear it. My favorite of all their songs is Paul McCartney. Oh my God, I love Paul McCartney, love Paul McCartney so too. deeply. Go on. Paul McCartney is a huge song to me. It's kind of like a, how would you describe that one? It's a little working day and night Michael Jackson, crazy yeah. off the wall kind of vibe. There's a bit of Paul McCartney himself in it, but do you know why it's called that? Do you know the story? Only from what I know from the lyrics, but tell the story. Because he would kind of explain it sometimes in shows, but yeah. basically he's had this kind of recurring dream where he would be talking to Paul McCartney about music. Mm. I mean, the song is about having a muse mm -hmm. and feeling like you've lost touch with your muse and him connecting with it again. And it's the music that connects me to you. Yes. Like, the whole song is about him connecting to this person, this thing beyond him. Relationship with music and relationship with other musicians and the people who listen yeah. to music. It's just this very pure and beautiful sentiment. And hey, if you're pop historian Jake Shears and you're praying to the divine muse, that's Paul McCartney to you. <laughs> It's funny because you really can hear more Beatles DNA in some of the other songs in the record. Yeah. Speaking to the, the idea of the muse, I think the aspects of Paul McCartney in Paul McCartney are more notional or mm. the idea of how harmony should feel and how a song should make you feel like you're at a party with all these other people. I always really like the chatter in the song with animatronic in yeah. the background. It's really cute and it's also very them. <laughs> It's such a joy bomb of a song too. Like it's just such a happy feeling song. To the notion of what you're saying, I mean, the lyrics are literally like, is it the party that ain't overtold through? Is it the wiring that suddenly yep. blow a fuse? Is it a chemical that makes this moment true? Is it the music that connects me to you? Ooh, ooh, ooh. You know, speaking of the up-tempo kind of disco-y songs, the song that precedes it, ooh, on one level, it felt like it's like a disco homage, but actually I feel like it's more of like, a 90s version of disco, like a take on the, on like Jamiroquai, mm -hmm. more so than a take on the Bee Gees or something like that. Ooh, 
I think you're absolutely right. It's like the most, in the sense of aesthetics, it's the most recent song. <laughs> There's a certain like 90s house energy to it. There was like a big 90s disco revival is a moment that like Jamiroquai was obviously such a huge part of, but also a presager of Chromio or bands that were reinventing disco in this Bloghouse era. I'll give you I've never thought about this, but I wonder if they ever really talked because they would have so much in common. The guys in Chromio yeah, right. and the members of the Scissor Sisters, I feel like there's a real kinship to them. I feel like a lot of what they were doing was standing up for a lot of music that people thought was corny, like reflexively right. thought oh, was corny. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, the Scissor Sisters are so much more elegant than Chromio was, but I get what you're saying. I think the difference between those two, and I know just from listening to the main guy in Chromio talk, I think that he was coming from a sort of defensive place where it's like, no, I think Shalimar and I think Colin Oates and I think Phil Collins, I think those rule. And yeah. I want to make music like right. that. I think the Scissor Sisters, I don't right. think they were being defensive at all. No. I think that they were coming from places like, no, we have the good taste in music. Right. And this, we're going to make music like that. And also we would never think that any of this wasn't uncool. I think that's where the queerness is helpful is that like, it's like yeah. as outsiders, we inherently own our bad taste or what is deemed as bad taste or whatever, like in a way where it's like straight guys might be more inclined to be like, no, dude, like, this is actually good. Like, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. So let's talk about I Don't Feel Like Dancing, which is by far their biggest hit. It's the lead single from this album. It's a number one Absolute smash. Absolute banger. Absolute banger. Number one smash across the entire world besides our poor country who has missed out <laughs> on this tragically for us. Like, sorry to us. How would you describe this song exactly? What is the sound of this song and what's it about? It's a disco song that has, like, kind of a country element. Mm -hmm. You know what I think may have been one of the inspirations for it is... Right before they went on stage, they would play this Dolly Parton song called Baby I'm Burning. Mm -hmm. Do you know yes. that one? I feel like this was their attempt to write that song. Yeah. To write that kind of like big banger country disco song and anyone kind of connect to it it's just about like not wanting to go out well it's the yes i mean it's yeah. the funniest fucking song ever because it is the most danceable sounding song you've ever heard like the minute it comes on all you want to do is dance and the lyrics are about how like you can't force me to dance like i don't want to yeah. and i don't, I don't feel like <laughs> yeah and it's such a yeah it's a real joy bomb god Oh my God, what an amazing song. And Elton John plays the piano on it. Yep, perfect. I think another influence on this song was the Leo Sayer song, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. It's almost like a oh, response great, to that great song. Call. So if that song is about you make me want to dance, this song is about actually you make me not want to dance or I don't want to dance. It's an interesting like almost response to it. So this is like their biggest song, their signature. I think a lot of people actually do in America recognize this song. Like from my DJing life, I can say that if you're going to play one Scissor Sister song to the basics out there, this is the one that they're going to recognize. Yeah. And it's funny because I think that the most popular song for them in the United States kind of depends on who you're talking to. I think it got a, some decent exposure. Mm -hmm. I think it was 
licensed a little bit, but it's also a song where if you just hear it, it's just like, it's such an immediate yeah, song. Yeah. Why wasn't it a hit in the United States? Because 2006, there was literally nowhere to put it. Exactly. Even a few years later, you would have places to put it. Cause That's what I'm like saying. Mika did so much better a few years later. Well, Mika is like, would never have existed without the Sister Sisters. I mean, he is like literally their like project. Yeah, exactly. It's the thing. It's like, you know, they walked so yeah. these other people could run. I'm, I really want to like talk about this at the end of the conversation, but I do feel like they softened to the ground for Lady Gaga because mm -hmm. there was a moment where Americans were ready to embrace something extremely fucking campy. And not to mention, she ended up taking them on tour at a certain point as almost like a thank you, I felt like at some, oh, at God, some point. That must have rolled. Yeah. That must have rolled. So... The other thing I just wanted to say about Tada before we move on from this conversation is I feel like the gayness is even more obscure on this record. Like, I don't feel like I, I think can you're point right. to any song on this record really. I mean, She's My Man maybe like plays with gender identity on some like really basic sort of level. But for the most part, these songs do not feel like they're dealing with queerness in any sort of overt lyrical way, maybe musically, but not in a- I, not I think a you're right. Way. Like it, it, there's like, you can definitely go through it and find some bits, but I think yeah. these are just songs they're just writing right songs. i mean like even the song everybody wants the same thing which concludes the album which like you could take as a read of hey we're all equal and everybody's a human like it still doesn't feel like they're taking a huge risk and saying anything really like scandalous in that regard or like anything that's pushing any buttons it feels very like, aimed at the most accessible the biggest audience possible without trying to be too gay weirdly even though it's very yeah. gay at the same time like in the subtext yeah i think this record it strikes me as pretty natural i don't think they're holding anything back no. i don't think they were ever in the business of holding things back no. but it makes so much sense especially having this great success with these two records and really having a blank check to just do whatever they wanted the third time out it makes a lot of sense that they would just go okay we're going way more queer we're yeah. going darker right so that's kind of where Nightwork comes in so then they do something different which is that there's four years that elapse between Tada and Nightwork. In my God, was that long? Yes, in my, and in my peripheral research of it, I didn't even realize this at the time. They record an entire record that they scrap, which I tried to find the reasons for, but couldn't quite figure out. But needless to say, the creation of the third record, it's apparently a very arduous creative process in a way that I don't think the first two albums were. So what they end up doing is they bring in an outside producer for the first time, who is this guy, Stuart Price. Stuart Price was a famous DJ and a remixer who got his biggest break when he produced Madonna's 2005 record, Confessions on a Dance Floor, which is considered by many, myself included, to be the last good Madonna Pretty album. Much. incredible record. So that kind of launches him into the stratosphere. He then went on to produce Kylie's record Aphrodite. He produced the Killers album Day and Age, which produced a big song called Human. Are we human or are we dancer? That one. <laughs> so the Sister Sisters bring him on board to produce this record, which is called Nightwork. At the time it came out, you reviewed this record in Pitchfork and I've pulled out some choice quotes. Oh, please. You tell me because I have no recollection of writing this, nor have I read it in years. <laughs> so I, I know it's a very positive review. It was. What did I give it? Like a, it was probably like a mid to high seven. Yeah, I think it was a 7.6. 
Yeah, it's probably about as high as I could get away with. Mm-hmm. Well, time. here's what you said. You said, whereas the first two Scissor Sisters records found a way to translate specifically gay subject matter into big tent camp that opened up their appeal to anyone with a taste for colorful dance music and 1970s radio pop, their third album isn't quite as inclusive. You then refer to this music as hypersexualized gay club mode and that the band's reference points have changed, abandoning 70s pastiche in favor of calling back to the sort of deeply uncool 80s pop that was largely ignored in the past decade of Reagan-era revivalism. Yeah, that feels right. <laughs> Let's just zero in on that last point I made in the yeah. review with the, the songs that were kind of calling to something that was like really uncool, but also kind of unexpected for them to do. So I'm thinking of yeah. like Harder You Get, which is kind of a Judas Priest kind of song. And it's like, a, mm-hmm. it is a metal S&M song. It rips. I love that song so much. It is really one of the most overtly gay songs they have. I don't think there's anything on this record that's really ambiguous in the way that the second record would no. be. But, but I feel like that one is really like one of the ones that are like, wow. I think the point here, and we're going to get into all the references, which is important to get to, but like this record, the change in approach is obvious. These are fucking gay sex songs. Yeah. Like, this is like the opposite of To Die in that way, where they clearly said, fuck it. Literally every song, both in ways that seem fun and exciting and sexy, and in ways that seem kind of subversive and a little bit dangerous, are about gay sex and romance. Uh, wait, how, so how long had you been out when this record came out? Five or six years. What was this record like to you? Shocking. Like, I was I was thrilled and titillated and shocked and like a little bit intimidated by the overt display of sexuality because I was still, although I'd been out of the closet for a while, I still was like working to sort of own my identity and figure out who I was. And I didn't have a lot of gay friends. I wasn't like part of gay culture in the way that I much more am now. In that time period, I still had like a lot of like internalized homophobia going on. So I was kind of like, most of my friends are straight and I DJ in straight nightclubs. And like, I don't really know that much about gay subculture stuff so I remember being like I mean I loved this album I was obsessed with it but I just remember being (laughs) sort of scandalized by like some of the lyrics and I remember you know you were talking about harder you get I mean it's like literally like I got some apples if you want them you can grab them beating my junk (laughs) the faster you're done can't have one you want them all Like, he's doing, like, the Dom thing on the bridge. Yes, 100%. And the voice he adopts. Like, talk about, like, ditching the fucking Barry Gibb thing. He goes into this really low register and he goes, what I really want to do tonight is toughen you up. (laughs) Barry Gibb for Barry White. (laughs) Absolutely slaps. They're definitely going for a Judas Priest thing. Yeah. There's another gay rock star who wasn't fully in the closet, but not also fully out. Rob Halford. I feel like there's kind of two modes of gay sex songs on this album. And it kind of moves almost like a concept album in some ways. You have the 
fun aspect of it on the front half of it, like the fun part of nightlife. Because a big part of this album is about gay sex and gay nightlife. Like that's kind of the themes about where yeah. they intersect, how you can find your freedom in being in an outsider club culture. It starts out with this song, Nightwork, which is like balls to the wall, almost like footloose sounding song. Like that one makes me think of the Pointer, Pointer Sisters. Sisters. Absolutely, yeah. I know they're big Pointer Sisters heads. No question. That seems like something that would be right up their alley. <laughs> you know, you've got Whole New Way, which is like another upbeat sort of, oh, this feels more in the classic Scissor Sisters vein of holding your hand and guiding you out into the nightlife, like in a very friendly kind of way, even though you might be going to do something sort of dangerous. But the lyrics, the shift in the lyrics is crazy. I mean, choice lyrics from Whole New Way. I think I need a rubber tonight. I've got your tail between my legs. My sneak up from behind is going to blow your mind. I mean, this is like a marked shift in a much more overtly queer direction than anything that they've done to this point. I mean, we can talk about relationships, but there's better things to fill your head with. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I really am drawn to that second half, like the darker part, the stuff that's like a little bit seedy. Yes. And obviously like Invisible Light is like the finale and that Ma one. Their best song perhaps? It's, it's really one of the best and that's Ian McKellen on it, right? Yes. It's. I mean, this is an epic about gay sex and clubbing that you've never heard. And it is so incredibly delightful when the payoff of that final drop comes after Ian McKellen's Vincent Price-esque, but like about gay yes, exactly. people in the club monologue. <laughs> in the middle of it. And having Ian McKellen come in, again, they're like fealty to gay history, almost telling the story of gay history and music in their music feels like it almost reaches its apex during this song. Babylon. And you've got that kind of classic Giorgio Moroder nodding Stuart Price production that harkens back to Confessions a little bit. Painted whores, sexual gladiators, fiercely old party children, all wake from their slumber to debut the Bacala. Also shades of their original hit, the cover of Comfortably Numb. This song sounds much like that. In a way, I feel like it's nodding to gay musical history because it's obviously got elements of house music, a gay art form, essentially, in the way that it builds up to this final drop. And it's also about sort of the release, the tension, the sexual buildup, the darkness and the lightness of gay hookup culture, meeting people in the club and hooking up. And it wouldn't be a Scissor Sister song also without the payoff of a fucking incredible hook. Oh, oh, 
I think you're drawn to the second half of this record for the same reason that I was this time, which is like, it's honestly touching as a gay person to hear our culture and our sex culture, the joys and lows and all of it rendered on wax in the context of pop songs in this way. And what I like about this is, is what I said. It's like, you get kind of the bright side of it. Like there's this song called Any Which Way. It's like another sort of like really fun club song. But then you get these kind of like conflicted songs that sort of deal with more of like the complicated nature of gay sex and of gay clubbing and of promiscuity and all of that kind of stuff on sex and violence. That's a song that's ambivalent about hookup culture and like the danger that you're putting yourself in. Like on the one hand, mm. there's a free freedom to gay sex culture and there's a freedom to breaking out of the heteronormative monogamous binary whatever the fuck you want to call it but at the same time there's also all of these darker elements to it and like what are you looking for and what are you missing and where's the loneliness underneath all of this I feel like is rendered in a number of these songs On that note, there's also Skin Tight, which is a, a love song, a, a sex song, but also a love song about loneliness and about wanting to feel closer to people. And I think that this is a really important element of gayness that is so unaddressed in popular culture and popular music in particular, which is like the fun and frivolity of gay sex and hookup culture, of bucking the norm, of having our own version of all of these things that isn't tied to like colonial patriarchal ideas of sex and romance. And then also some of the shame elements that are involved with a group of people that had to deny who they were for most of their existence and the way that that also infects our romantic and sexual lives. And Skin Tight is a song about wanting to feel closer to someone that you're having sex with and not have it be so cash. I think a lot of the beauty of Nightwork and why I think it's their best record and the most realized thing, a lot of what you were just saying, but it's writing about being gay, being part of gay culture, having like these really personal experiences, but it's not really like about gay culture writ large, no. kind of in the way that maybe some of the first songs were. Right. I think a lot of things now, you know, it's kind of a, a give and take, whereas like representation, like this is not about representation. Right. This is a human being. Mm. This is a human being's experience in the world mm. or looking in on other people's experience. Yes. This is about specifics. This is about the nitty gritty of actual life. It's not putting a smiling face on mm -hmm. it, which I think you can probably say the first two records really were. No question. This is the darker side of things, but it's not like 
the darker side is like all terrible. No, that's what's so elegant about it. The first two records really exist in that space we were saying before, that kind of after dark magazine where it's like post Stonewall, pre-AIDS. Yes. And this is very much a post-AIDS record. Yeah. I think Skin Tight, that one obviously directly approaches it, sex and violence. Yeah. And I think like you, you get a bit of it and like it can't come quickly enough, but... This is like really like going deep. It's about being a person in the world. And I think a lot of the best records really are not about being anybody. This is about being somebody. Yeah, it's like the personal is political. I mean, I know that that's a cliche, yes. but it's so true of this record. It's an incredible piece of work. I think as time has gone by, yes. I think it's proven to be like their masterpiece. I completely agree. I When I listened to it this time, it like I've always loved it, but it really stood out to me from the first two. Like I'm are two records I hold close to my heart, but this one is special. This album has power. Like, it really left me with something. Like, when I finished re-listening to this yesterday, like, I thought and felt. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I really, <laughs> I didn't just have a fun time listening to it, which is how I feel about their first two albums, which is like, what a great time I had listening to this album. Like, this one I walked away and I was like, this like, left me with something to process. And like, the best pop music is both fun and that. Those two things together is such a potent combination. And this album to me captures that. It's really one of my all-time favorites and I'm so glad that you gave me such a great review to help me rethink some of the stuff about how I had absorbed it in the past. So this record, I think on the flip side of what we're saying is a commercial fracturing point for them on some level. Is that your perception of it? I mean, I think they went pretty far in a specific direction. I think Fire With Fire was a pretty big hit, but beyond that, I don't feel like this record left them in the same sort of pop stardom status that they had been in the UK prior to this. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of a modest decline. Yeah. Like not like a flop, but you know, the moment had already also passed. Like a few years had gone by and the Scissor Sisters are back. The Scissor Sisters fans are excited. You know, it's funny because even though there's really probably a more obvious place to put them on the radio at that time, they're not really there. No. And also, like, the stuff that they're doing here, like, Invisible Light, songs like that, like, they're just a little more hardcore. Yeah. They're not trying to write pop hits on Except the Fire with Fire, which literally yeah. sounds like fucking The Killers. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of why it's my least favorite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've never really cared for that song. No. It's just kind of there to me. Yeah. I also think, as you said, some of it's a function of time, letting four years pass between records. Very risky move in popular music for any artist to do that. But also, they made a record that was this gay. I mean, like, whatever you want to say about the earlier two albums, they tread the line carefully enough, either intentionally or unintentionally, to the point where this music was not threatening to mainstream straight audiences in the yeah. way that I can't imagine a song like Harder You Get or Sex and Violence is going to be received by like Joe Schmo radio listener. I mean, this is no take your mama right. out and, and all And at night. the same time, it, there's also the thing where because this record goes into such specifics, and I was saying with my, my friend Chris was the one who pointed out some yeah. of these things to me. Yeah. Some of like the real things where it's like, you have to be in the know to get some of this record. Mm. The songs will be the songs, but to really understand what he's saying, yeah. I think you kind of have to be a gay dude. Yeah, I think that's very true. And also the entire thesis of this record could be summed up by the line in Nightlife, which is like, you can find your life in the nightlife. I think that's a very gay <laughs> conceit. You could either take that at face value or you could say to yourself, the whole idea of a chosen family, a lot of these things are discovered in going out and finding gay community. And where does gay community exist? A lot of times in gay clubs, in gay nightlife. So that's what this record really celebrates and like speaks to in a specific way. And we need albums 
problems like this. So the fact that this may have fractured their fan base in 2010, I'm happy that they made such a bold creative choice in that regard because this album is, <laughs> as you said, it's aged very well. Also, it sounds amazing. People need to use Stuart Price more, not less. I feel like everybody makes one record with him and moves on. He's a really great tool to have in your fucking arsenal. Like his track record is pretty amazing. So this record comes out. Two years later, they release their final album. This is 2012. The Scissor Sisters have not made a record since this. Let's talk just very briefly about Magic Hour. This is far and away my least favorite Scissor Sisters album, like by about 10 million miles. There's a lot of feeling like they're playing almost like catch up with some pop sounds in this moment, like in a uh -huh. way that only the horses produced by Calvin Harris that literally sounds like, okay, so we've gone from all of these amazing obscure 80s references and all the amazing stuff that they've brought to the fore and these other records and now we're referencing We Found Love. Like that's your, that's your tag back here. It does feel like there's a bit of flop sweat on them because I yeah. feel like they came out of Nightwork making this very authentic record that's not super mainstream. Uh -huh. And they, I think they probably wanted to kind of get back in there. The thing is, Nightwork's also a very well-made and thoughtfully made sequenced album, whereas this feels like such a grab bag and often feels like we've heard versions of them doing these songs better in the past. That was what I kept thinking. Tell me a bit about Let's Have a Kiki, because I feel like that's a song that's a little bit out of my zone. Right. And I feel like the success of that song is definitely out of my zone. I think if there's another song that audiences will recognize in America who are not aware of the Sister Sisters' like, success abroad with all of these other records, it's this one. Let's have a kiki. I wanna have a kiki. Lock the doors. Sorry. Let's have a kiki. Motherfucker. I'm gonna let you have it. Let's have a kiki. I wanna have a kiki. Die. This, in my mind, popularized the word kiki. It has been in use for a long time. They didn't invent the word, but that is now a common parlance in gay vernacular. And this song was at my introduction to the word. And again, I love the notion of Scissor Sisters as kind of like gay and pop music historians teaching the children a lesson. And this song not only is a fun song to have a kiki to, but actually explains to you what a kiki is. It literally goes, a kiki is a party for calming all your nerves. A kiki is a party for calming all your nerves. We're spilling tea and dishing just desserts one may deserve. And though the sun is rising, few may choose to leave. So shade that lid and we'll all bid adieu to your ennui. It's literally explaining to you what having a kiki is, which is like getting together with your friends and like talking shit and also like maybe historically doing kiki. drugs. Kiki, I think now has become not about doing drugs, but I think canonically having the kiki is like, you're doing drugs and you're talking shit with your friends. So this also has like a great animatronic breakdown to it. Like where she goes, oh my God, this kiki is marvelous. Wonderful kiki. This Kiki is mom. Probably her greatest showcase. I mean, yes. I think like she has other songs that I think are better songs, but I feel like that's the one where like she is the star of that song. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, this is kind of the end for them. What do you know about that? Why did that go down? Well, I think there's a lot of burnout. Right. I was reading about this a little bit earlier. I've read a couple different places, like Jake Shears say that Let's Have a Kiki kind of was an end point to them. Mm. Like they were like, well, we did this thing. And I think they felt like they had nothing else to say. Was it official? Like they really were like, this is a rap or they just sort of fizzled? They just dissipated. They never like formally broke up. And he he's also said like, oh yeah, we'll come back. E even just to go on a reunion tour, that would be sick. Mm -hmm. 
hmm. God, I've been waiting for that for so Me long. Me too, but I'll be there. If they come back to make another record, I'm curious what they would want to do. Because Jake Shear's solo stuff, I feel like it's been less exciting to me because it feels like what you would expect him to do, but without the discipline mm. and the finesse of Baby Daddy. Mm. It's one of those things where you really hear where the Baby Daddy is because it's not there. <laughs> it's like, it's not bad. And also, like, you know, he was on Broadway. He was in Kinky Boots. Mm-hmm. And I feel like him doing Broadway was kind of a very logical thing. Definitely. It was a good place for him to go in his career trajectory. Mm-hmm. I know I interviewed him around 2012 or so, yeah. Jake Shears. Yeah. And he definitely was starting to want to do other things. Mm. And I feel like you're in a band for like 10 years. You want to see what else you can do, especially while you're still fairly young. And also opportunities come to you that if you're in a band nonstop that you can't go do them. And like animatronics also like a TV presenter in England. Yeah, that makes total sense. So, so she's like made for that. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like also you're speaking a little bit to like the alchemy of the group, which is that like what made this so much fun was the chemistry between the two of them, the campiness of the performance, the yeah. fun of the entire endeavor. Like with Jake on his own, I mean, I'm sure he could make great music. He's an incredible musician. We know he's a wonderful songwriter, like all of these things but there's something explosive about them as a crew that i miss without them when i listen to jake's solo music where do we see the scissor sisters influence in pop music since then i think it's more abstract because mm-hmm. i don't know i mean okay so i think we, we mentioned mika before yeah. so that's a really obvious well, let's get mika way. out of the fucking way I think it's really more just kind of opening up space for out gay music. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure if a lot of the out gay musicians of today think about Sister Sisters, see them as forebears. That's kind of the curse of being in this sort of position mm-hmm. a lot of the time, especially if people aren't really like focusing on the narrative. I think there's certain parts of popular culture that because the people involved were so invested in telling the story over and over again, like punk is perfect example people tell the story of punk over and over again so it's like a, a passing around bible yes. they're kind of in a zone where people aren't telling this story over and over mm-hmm. again and the stories that they belong in they're not being mentioned yeah so sister sisters i think are in this very strange place where they're not getting the recognition they probably should you could put that blame in a lot of different places but i think it also makes them very ripe for that rediscovery of, oh my God, this band was here and they did it. They did it. Especially if they come back and people are like, oh my God, <laughs> you can see them again. I think it is important to find a way to let younger people know they exist. And I think there's a lot of people even beyond gay kids who would be so into them. I just feel like there's so many people who would be really excited about this band and no one's really telling them about them. It's a gay thing, I think, sometimes to not pass down our stories. The AIDS crisis obviously played a huge role in this, where an entire generation of people that would be passing down yeah. gay stories died. That's part one. But then there's all of the shame that's intrinsic to gay history that has created some of these stories to get erased or some of these acts to be erased. Part of it's obviously that they weren't commercially mainstream successful in America on the same level that they were overseas. But I really, and I know I mentioned this already, but like, look, the Gaga era, the Katy era, I mean, gay men weren't yet allowed to be mainstream pop stars in America. I mean, we're really still 
just getting that maybe for the first time ever with Little Nas X in a certain way. But like, that was gay forward. Gaga was in some ways the first out gay male pop star. <laughs> like I can see a connection, I think, between them and the ground that they might have softened for her. I've always seen them as connected in that way. And when she took them on tour, I was like, oh, I guess she sees them as connected in that way too. Oh, man, that was a rule. All right, so let's talk about the Pantheon. We talked a little off mic about this. I told you you are free and within your rights to put them in different tiers in different geographical territories, which feels germane to this conversation. I would say that they're solid tier four outside of America. They are definitely that in England, right, for sure. Right. And I would say in the United States, solidly uh, cult act. Niche legend. Yeah, niche legend. Yeah, I think that that's got to be it. Because first of all, the requirements I listed in tier four just, and they fit this perfectly. One to two big albums, three to five hit singles that are recognizable to many outside of their core base. Yes. Name is at least recognizable to people who are of prime age during their moment. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's obvious that they have one or two signature songs and it's very clear what they are. See, I feel like that's harder here because I feel like they have a few different right. songs and it depends contextually because Let's Have a Kiki might be the biggest right. one for a very gay audience, yeah. like, a, like a more modern gay audience. Yeah. Take Your Mama, yeah. that would be a big song for people in a more mainstream audience. Yeah. I don't feel like dancing is, is, is it kind of a different thing. Their signature songs are mixed. But Don't Feel Like Dancing was such the obvious biggest commercial hit, so obviously that I feel like for yeah. most people who aren't Scissor Sisters fans or who like just didn't happen to catch that exact moment, that's the song that they're gonna know. Probably. I think Filthy Gorgeous kinda has a pretty yeah, that's true. big footprint too. But I do think you're right because when I look at tier three, I feel like they're not quite in that realm. Cause like their run of success was really short feeling to me ultimately. Cause if you think about Nightwork being kind of like a middling commercial success, even in Europe, I think you're right. They're tier four in the UK or in Europe and niche legends here. That seems like the right vibe. So that's where we're gonna put them. My last question for you, which I ask every guest, and this will be hard cause we feel like we've talked about every single sister, sister song under the sun, but <laughs> What's your favorite underrated Scissor Sister song, hopefully that we haven't talked about or that we've only talked a little bit about, that is like a pet fave that we could send the podcast out on? Oh, you know, I would say everybody wants the same thing. Mm. It's such a good pop song and it's just got like a really great sweep to it. But I feel like that one doesn't really get the love it deserves. And I think they kind of like abandoned that song live after a certain point. And it's like that one gives me a really great classic Sister Sisters energy. I agree. And also like encompasses sort of like the fun loving energy that comprised their earliest music and was kind of foundational to how we think about them. So let's go out on Everybody Wants the Same Thing. Matthew Perpetua, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, glad to be here. All right, y'all, there you have it. The Scissor Sisters, Tier 4 in the UK, Niche Legends here in America. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so much to Matthew Perpetua for coming on the show. This has been one I've really wanted to share with you guys for a really long time. This band means a lot to me. I really think there's a lot of 
fans of Pop Pantheon out there that will love this band and will really get something out of listening to their music. So go check out their music. Check out the Spotify playlist in the show notes of this episode. Hop in the Discord. Let's talk Scissor Sisters. The link for that is also in the show notes of this episode. Leave Pop Pantheon a rating or review. Let people know what your favorite episodes were on social media and tag Pop Pantheon Pod and you enter yourself in a contest to pick an episode of the show. And follow us on social media, Pop Pantheon Pod, DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. And until next time, you guys have a wonderful life. Happy Pride. Bye-bye.